You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Um, I'll just quickly introduce our quite large panel we have here today. Um, first, we have Tom Alves, who is a senior lecturer in property at RMIT, and he's also the coordinator for the Melbourne, Melbourne Housing Expo, or EBA, which we'll hear more about uh, later in the talk. Uh, then Tim Riley, who's founder of Property Collectives, uh, which is described as a collaborative development model that brings people together to develop inner city homes at cost. Uh, in the middle, we have Jessica Leslie, who's a visual artist and educator, but he's also a resident of Murundaka, which is a co-housing development in Heidelberg Heights, um, Melbourne's first co-housing community, and it's part of Common Equity Housing Limited, which runs a number of uh, cooperative housing projects. Uh, then we have uh, Bridget Hammond, who is a senior policy advisor at the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning, but recently returned from a year in Rotterdam as a John Monash Scholar, where she was looking at urban land governance and new models of housing delivery, uh, particularly in London. And then last but not least, Jesse French, who's a creative producer, strategist and curator with a background in public programs. Uh, but she's also a resident of 122 Rosneath Street, uh, which is an assemble development, not done under the current assemble model, um, but still with a fairly uh, large community component to the process of how that was put together. So I think it's a really great mix of people more on the kind of governance and planning side with, with people that have direct experience living in, in citizen-led housing projects. Uh, but just to begin, I think it's good to contextualise a bit where we're, where we're at in Melbourne with housing and why... Um, this type of, uh, these types of models, sorry, I'm like being inundated by flies here. Uh, while these types of models are quite important, um, the OECD recently uh, put out a report and in the report it said, access to good quality affordable housing is fundamental to well-being. It can help reduce poverty and enhance the quality of opportunity, social inclusion and mobility. And I think to me the, the two key things to take away from that are these issues of affordability and, and quality. And there's been a lot of talk in Melbourne in the last few years about affordability for very good reason. Um, house prices in the last decade have grown at almost twice the rate of household incomes. Despite the fact we're in a historically low period for mortgages, households are actually spending a greater share of their income servicing mortgages. Uh, and some recent analysis by SGS Economics um, projected that the affordable housing shortfall just within the city of Melbourne local government area will be 23,000 units by 2036. Um, and you have to think about that on a metropolitan Melbourne scale, and that's, it's a really big challenge in the years ahead. The kind of flip side of the affordability challenge is that a lot of people have been pushed into the private rental sector, and we have a really, really dysfunctional private rental sector. Um, on current trends, it's possible that up to 50% of young people will never actually own a home. So the, the private rental sector then becomes a much, much um, more important aspect of the housing system. But 
again, in Australia, we, we have such an owner-occupier-oriented approach to housing. We're one of only two countries of the UK that has, uh, allows leases that are less than 12 months. Um, we have an archaic Residential Tenancies Act that hasn't really changed in 30 or 40 years and is completely focused on landlords rather than tenants. Uh, and we just generally have rental housing that's insecure, poor quality and unaffordable, increasingly unaffordable. And lastly, this issue of quality, it, I think it applies both on the design side and also on the construction side. Um, on the, in the construction side, there's obviously been a lot of stuff in the news recently around defects, particularly in high-rise buildings, um, flammable cladding, all of these kinds of issues. Um, but then we also just have a general lack of choice in housing as well. Um, our housing models are not really keeping up with changes in how people live. Um, so sorry, that's a, just a really quick kind of sweeping overview and it's, it's probably a bit pessimistic, but hopefully there's some optimism that's going to come through now in the discussion. Um, but I, I think the first question really is, the, the title of this panel is um, citizen-led housing and uh, what do we actually mean by citizen-led housing? Um, Tom, along with his uh, colleague Andrea Sharam, um, was quite important in the discourse in Melbourne uh, introducing this term deliberative development as opposed to speculative development. So I thought I might ask you first um, how, you would, how you think of citizen-led housing and perhaps some examples as well. Sure. I'm on. Um, yes, and thank, thank you for that introduction. Before I directly answer that question, I want to add to some of the words that you've said as by way of uh, setting a context for this panel and to also add to the issues of affordability and quality, the question of uh, environmental sustainability, which I'm, I know you didn't deliberately <laughs> uh, leave out and, and it's not like you're unconcerned about that. But, uh, but that's another uh, really important thing, obviously, and in the broader context of today, um, obviously is very important. And the, the real issue that first got me interested in this particular space is the fact that uh, we've known for many decades that in order for the Melbourne metropolitan region, which is an incredibly unsustainable urban system in terms of its levels of consumption and, and, and uh, carbon dependence, uh, it's a well, I thought it was a three-planet uh, level of consumption, but I recently read something which was suggesting it's uh, closer to a four-planet uh, level of resource consumption and, and uh, carbon intensiveness, which is you know, a very alarming situation. And uh, when I was doing my PhD 15 years ago or so, the, uh, you know, the, there was a strong consensus among um, at least the scientific academic community that... Uh, we needed to change how we manage and grow our city. And in particular, uh, we need housing to be, which is you know, a major driver of urban form, to be uh, located in a more uh, compact way, closer to jobs, services, etc. And, and these are themes that have been in government policy for a long time and they persist in, in Plan Melbourne and they're all perfectly good. But how do we actually achieve? Uh, achieve that objective is the real uh, burning question because we've been trying to achieve it for decades and somehow haven't. So my interest in this um, this whole issue of uh, citizen-led housing really came from that. You know, how, how do we actually 
change our housing system so that we can actually deliver the kind of housing we need. Because as we were starting to see more uh, apartments being developed just in the last 10 to 15 years, I would argue that you know, they haven't really contributed substantially to the sustainability of the metropolitan region, in fact, quite the contrary. So how, how do we deliver um, more apartments, more dense forms of housing, but how do we do it in a way that helps actually address the whole uh, issue that, that we were wanting to encourage more of that sort of housing to achieve, which, which is to improve the sustainability of our, our whole urban system and also how do we not make it part of the problem of actually worsening affordability and worsening quality, uh, which it has tended, unfortunately, to be. So in that context, um, I'm quite interested in, in other forms of housing provision and how do we actually achieve a, a process of intensification that doesn't rely on declining affordability as a driver of that process, which currently it does. And the opportunities that uh, citizen-led uh, or other forms of uh, financing and provision of housing offered uh, provide that. So, so after that very long, <laughs> lengthy introduction, uh, to answer your direct question, uh, citizen-led housing is, is housing where Obviously, the, the citizens, the people who uh, are going to be living in that housing and living near that housing, engaging with those uh, buildings, are directly involved in either procuring that housing or the you know, ongoing management of that housing once it, once it already exists. And, and uh, there, you know, there are lots of historic models of this, you know, cooperative forms of development, cooperative forms of tenure, that uh, you know, have not played a big part historically in Australia's housing system and Melbourne's, and that could, I think, play a much bigger part. And uh, you alluded to the work that I did with uh, my colleague Andrea Sharam, uh, which followed on, I guess, from work that I was doing in the Government Architect's Office at the time with Geoffrey London, when we were looking at uh, ways of encouraging uh, 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 you know, re future resident-led uh, development processes, uh, what Andrea and I did was really uh, analyse and understand the development process for um, apartment buildings to understand what drove that process and what the issues were in terms of uh, increasing costs or you know, where, where, where what was stopping, um, I guess, the provision of affordable quality housing within that system. And uh, and through that analysis, I mean, what we were able to say was um, that that type of uh, provision where it's entirely market-led relies on, uh, well, it, it necessarily uh, causes an undersupply of housing because, you know, in, in a market context, you don't want to be flooding the market with products that you can't sell. So it always aims to sort of come in um, undersupplied. And also uh, the real risk to the developer, which is what adds to the, the premium on, the, on the, the finance and on the cost, is the risk that at the end of the process, the investors, and most of them are investors, not owner-occupiers, who are, um, con who are you know, ostensibly buying these apartments off the plan, that they won't actually follow through with an actual purchase because 
maybe the market's changed and they may, uh, may not be as good a proposition financially for them. So, so if we could address that risk, then, then there's the potential to lower the, the cost of the development process and hence make an argument to lenders, banks and so forth that we could actually uh, reduce the cost of the finance and the cost of the whole process. So it's quite a, a complex uh, analysis, but that, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and so if, if, uh, if citizens themselves could uh, actually lead the development, then in, in effect what you've got is a whole lot of, you know, off-the-plan sales, uh, in, in inverted commas, uh, already locked in. So th that whole part of the development process uh, potentially gets eliminated. Uh, so that's, um, I guess, uh, maybe that in a nutshell. But one quick thing I would add is that there is a history in Australia of citizen-led uh, housing provision going back to the 1950s, not for higher density housing, but for um, lower density detached housing. A lot of our early um, suburban expansion immediately after the Second World War was actually driven by people who joined cooperatives, not development cooperatives, but um, financing cooperatives. And so cooperative banks or cooperative um, uh, building societies, as they were called, building societies, because they were actually created uh, to uh, lend cooperative finance to people developing their own home, were really, really significant in actually promoting uh, home ownership and, uh, and, and housing production uh, in, in the decade of the 1950s in particular. So we have uh, some great traditions to draw on, but applying them to a, a higher density scenario is, is really has been my interest. I think the, inter the interesting thing to me is that your, that article came out in, or that report came out in 2015, was it? Um, and in the period since, there's been a bit of an explosion in Melbourne of new models um, that I think have that kind of deliberative or citizen-led aspect to them. Um, and it's actually been quite interesting because I've spent a lot of time in Sydney recently and people in Sydney are very jealous somehow about what's going on in Melbourne um, and asking why is it happening in Melbourne and not happening in Sydney. Um, and I think, Tim, your model is one of these models. Um, so it'd be great maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about property collectives, but perhaps also kind of contextualise it in this broader ecosystem of Nightingale, Assemble, etc. Sure. Um, well, I, I remember going to your launch of your report <laughs> at Swinburne Uni in 2015, and at that point we'd finished one project and had started another, and I remember reading your report and going, um, well, I was, I was really interested in it because there were so many aspects of what we were trying to do at that point that you picked up on in your report. Um, and it, it kind of was good for me because it, it sort of gave me a bit of context around what we were actually doing at that point because I'd had no sort of context around um, the wider market or, or the international experience. But um, so our, our model is similar to what... Um, Tom was saying, we, we find participants uh, for our projects before we buy the land and those participants become part of the, part of the, well they become the developer effectively. We're replacing a traditional developer with a group of people and we're enabling them to become the developer and then have control over, you know, the, the property 
that they're buying that they want to develop and then also the, de the, the development that they eventually create. So by doing that, we are um, allowing them to internalise the developer profits. So we're immediately making the housing cheaper by circa 15%. Um, and, you know, the participants are enabled to um, control the quality objectives uh, of their project. So um, I think one of the challenges we have around delivering quality sort of medium density uh, uh, housing is the uh, patience of the capital that is um, defining, you know, the city. And... Uh, really one of the keys to um, these sorts of models is is the finance. And so by allowing participants to um, fund their own projects, they're ultimately gaining control over the, the, the built form outcomes. Um, so that's, I suppose, property collectives in a nutshell. Um, it is very much an ownership-based model. Um, so, you know, the driver for people is very strong around wanting to own their home in a particular location but do it uh, more affordably. Uh, the trade-off being, you know, people are taking on the risk of being a developer. But that's what, you know, we're here to do to try and make that, uh, reduce that risk and make it a lot easier for them. Um, and then, yeah, since 2015, um, I can't remember what year the Commons was. Finished, but shortly after, uh, around about that, that time, time, around that time, time, and then that sort of um, morphed into Nightingale, um, which isn't more a traditional development model, but it's architect-led, and so I think where it um, shares some common commonalities with what we're doing is that the patient, the investors that are backing that model are also a bit more patient than your traditional speculative investors. Um, so they're more patient and they're also willing to take reduced, well, not reduced returns, but um, not, as, not as aggressive in the returns that they're looking for. And that's enabling the architects to deliver better quality housing, you know. Um, and, um, and really, I think for the last, I don't know, six, seven years, it's the only real private sort of development, alternative development models has been um, what we've been doing and ours is very much a smaller scale sort of six to eight dwelling model whereas Nightingale's more your sort of 30 apartment scale and now we've got the Assemble model which is also an ownership uh, centric model but sort of with a twist where it's looking to uh, allow um, participants to um, sort of ease themselves into ownership by allowing them to rent uh, for a period before then um, purchasing. And it's also, from my from an outsider looking in, also sort of sharing a lot of the similar objectives around Nightingale of wanting to deliver good quality housing and, um, um, and, 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 and once again, the, the capital that is investing in that model is a lot more patient than, you know, the capital that's investing in traditional speculative models. So... I'd jump in for a second. I think in terms of the Melbourne-Sydney divide as well, one of the key factors is even though Melbourne is extraordinarily unaffordable, it's still possible to purchase land and do a development, whereas in Sydney, 
even if you live an hour from the CBD, you're going to spend $800,000 on a house and land package. So, you know, one of the challenges that Nightingale has had in trying to build a Nightingale development in Sydney is the cost of land just prohibits that from occurring. I'll actually keep it on you. <laughs> um, you've obviously spent, just come back from overseas and you've been looking at um, models that exist in, in London, but then also in the Netherlands as well. Um, because you perhaps touch on a few examples of things that are happening overseas that are actually not happening here yet? Sure. Uh, so I recently completed research uh, looking at the financialization of housing. So essentially what investment from superannuation funds, large, larger institutional funds is doing to uh, the development of housing in London. Uh, and what that research ended up leading to be was looking at new models being developed by London boroughs or councils themselves. Um, I had the intention of wanting to see how um, institutional funds were impacting more citizen-led developments, but unfortunately uh, that wasn't possible because there isn't that many of them in London and the ones that exist, uh, they're kind of um, punnelled with research requests all the time. Um, but what I ended up finding is that uh, in an environment of austerity, um, so I guess uh, in, in the London sense, uh, local councils are still responsible for managing social housing. Uh, a lot of that has been taken away from housing associations, but they themselves still have a lot of land holdings, especially in lower socioeconomic areas in the outer parts of, parts of London. And what I found is that... Um, Obviously, there's extraordinary needs. So I was looking at two East London boroughs and they themselves have over 100,000 people on their wait list. And there was recent research to show that uh, if people that were actually eligible for social housing um, put themselves down on the wait list, that would almost triple across London. So a huge amount of need. Um, they also have archaic tenancy laws. So, you know, if you're a tenant in a private house in London, you have a thing called a no-fault eviction, which means that your landlord can just turn around and say, you have to be out of here in four weeks and I don't have to give you a reason why. So that means that a tenant is never in a position where they feel comfortable you know, complaining about a fault, faulty equipment or anything like that. So that's kind of the context um, within which that is sitting. And then what I discovered was that local boroughs themselves are, for the first time since the 1980s, are building more housing, which at face value you think this is fantastic. Um, and it is. They are at least increasing the amount of housing available. Um, but they've developed these models where they're essentially mimicking what the private sector is doing and um, sort of setting up subsidiaries within their own local boroughs that are set up on the provision of having a rate of return on investment that, that commercial properties would do. So uh, the borough that I was looking up has set up a subsidiary and within its framework um, of operation or its governance operations, they must make a 20% return on investment. Uh, so that's a local government and that makes it quite hard uh, in terms of building affordable housing. And so what they've done is they've developed a model where they build market rent housing. Uh, so they build... Um, you know, multi-residential developments that have market rent provisions. The rent that's generated from that market rent then goes to cross-subsidise the affordable rent. But it means they have to, because they still have this 20% return on investment, it limits the amount that they can actually build of affordable housing. So the reason they got in their teeth in the game to begin with was because there isn't enough supply of um, affordable housing. But then they developed these models that are based on this generation of profit. And so 
you know, they find themselves complaining about their own systems based on the reason for why they got in the game in the first place. So it was, it's really fascinating. And on a, just another really small component that's really important to emphasise is that 20% of the profit not only goes into cross-subsidising their affordable housing, but also it goes into their their larger council budget as well. And so one of the reasons that they also gave for developing these models was, you know, after the GFC, um, London boroughs lost up to 30% of their funding. And unlike in, in Australia, local councils have a lot more service provision that they have to provide in terms of health, mental health, childcare, all these sorts of things that, yes, Australian councils do too, but London boroughs have a lot more responsibility. And so they use their generation um, of market rent profit in order to also cross-subsidise their own budgets in, in the face of austerity. And so what happens there is they're dependent on the market increase, continuing to increase. So they have to, they themselves are the planning authority that generate the zoning of land that dictates how affordable, you know, in some sense, the land will be. But they're reliant on the system continuing to grow in order to ensure that they have the right amount of service, they have the right amount of income coming in to service their community. Um, so it, it's this really circular, crazy model um, that really, I guess, I argued in my research has come out of the face of austerity. Um, also, the fact that they... Um, they're limited in their ability to generate revenue through taxation and, and things like that. Within like those examples, so what, what was the role of citizens in it? So when I would ask questions about, um, so there's a couple of, couple of different aspects here. So uh, in places like Hackney in East London, they're seeing a lot more um, citizen-led developments on really small sites. Um, which, which was really interesting in itself. Um, but often the land was being gifted to these groups um, because it's just so expensive that, that it's not really possible. Um, and then in the more outer boroughs, um, the, there was a sense that um, there was a little bit of fear towards the community. So uh, fear in the sense of um, wanting to make sure that uh, they as, you know, pop, um, elected representatives were service, serving their community, um, but also fear in, in wanting to let go of control. So, uh, you know, in the sort of traditional social housing units, you've got people that have lived there for, you know, 30, 40 years, um, and then they're coming in with sort of regeneration projects. Um, and a lot of these communities are really, really established, and they had put back to the council and said, can you give us some agency? Like if we were able to have control of what would happen here, acknowledging that things need to change, but perhaps we would do it in a different way. And there seemed to me to be a lot of fear associated um, at, at the government level of what that would look like. And obviously in the model that they had created, the citizens themselves at a social housing level, um, which sort of this makes perfect sense to me, they were developing, they had come forward with some models, but of course those models didn't have this 20% return on investment. And so the local government saw that they couldn't enable that because they were so reliant on this, this cycle of generating um, money from, from the land that they owned. <laughs> yeah. so really, really not much engagement at all with citizens. Um. Um, as Tom alluded to, there is a longer history in Australia of um, more community-led housing, and Murundaka is an example of that. Um, it used to be called the Earth Co-op, is that right? Um, but perhaps it'd be great if you could speak a little bit about what the experience is like of living there and what what role residents actually play um, 
in the in the project getting it up and also in the ongoing kind of operation so um in in terms of our history that's correct we come out of a housing cooperative called earth cirque which is over 30 years old and that was a smaller cooperative of about um it was nine households um at the time that two of the founders said we've got an aging um group of people in our co-op and we need to find some different housing solutions so they actually went overseas and they started researching co-housing across Europe and they came back and they pitched co-housing as a concept to CEHL which is the program that our co-ops are part of and um that was at the that was around 2009 and there was um funding available from the state government also sorry no, the federal government at that time um and that's how that project became funded through a combination of um stimulus package funds and then also um the resale of property that was already within the co-op and um our co-housing development we've lived there for 8 years now I've only been there for 2 and a half years but um you know carrying the narrative of who we are is a big part of what we do when we get together so um sharing our story and how we came about is is something that even as a newer member that I feel I can carry um currently our co-housing has 18 households then we share a communal living space and kitchen and we have shared values around sustainability personal growth and conscious communication and um in terms of our organization it is a lot of work not only do we live together and do we have to manage the resources that are our homes because as a housing cooperative we're tenants and we're also landlords to each other so we have those responsibilities but then we do have the responsibilities that come with being co-located um and so it's it's really basically two fairly large um portfolios that we're working across Murundaka co-housing is um itself an association and then we have our cooperative so we have to have monthly meetings for both of those and we have to have separate finance for finances for both of those and um on top of that we have all of our community building projects So in terms of our organization we do have eight different committees that everyone in our cooperative participates on at one and sometimes two then of course we have things that come up from time to time like member selection and as you can imagine when you're talking about 18 households and I'd say at a max we really only ever have about 35 people or 25 active participating adults that's a lot of work and um, that comes along with this idea that most of us just call home. And Jessie, you you live also in a collective development but of quite a different type. Um so what what's your experience of living in Roseneath Street and how is it different I guess to just living in a normal apartment complex somewhere else? Um before I go into that, I I'd like to acknowledge that um when we're talking about citizens in Australia we we are living on the land of the longest existing citizens culture in the world uh but also when we're talking about citizen land housing we're only talking about 
citizens that can afford to buy a house, and that's quite a small proportion of people. Uh, it's problematic, I think, uh, the whole model of ownership. Um, and I think when you're talking about citizen-led housing, what you're actually talking about is programs that have more deliverables than just profit, because when you're talking about a, a more traditional development model, they're a business and their main accountability is profit at the end of the day. So it's also, uh, I think, positive that there's, there's these new models that have more deliverables and more priorities than just profit and that they're more entwined with creating a community that perhaps has some better environmental, um, some better ways of living, um, as well as good quality housing, which I think is also an issue where you've had developers that are not even concerned with making housing, they're concerned with making investments and potentially aren't even housing anyone. Uh, Roseneath is uh, obviously, the, it was a, a different to the new Assemble model, which is so extremely amazing. Um, Assemble have opted to take less of a profit, um, about half of the profit to a traditional developer in order to deliver housing for people who may not have a, a, a deposit straight up. So there's a lot of financial counselling that happens. Um, I think uh, people sign on, they're able to kind of have five years uh, in which they're supported to have that deposit ready for the time that they take on the ownership. Uh, the 122 Roseneath model was different to that. Uh, it was more of a traditional um, have the deposit place and move on from there. But all of the people who bought in the early stages had engagement uh, probably from about a year before we ended up buying. So there was uh, lots of engagement to have people voting on use of common areas of size of apartments, uh, weighing up options of like, would you prefer to have say a slightly bigger lounge room or have more this much more expense on your property. And yeah, that was an amazing part to have a, a play in and being able to make those decisions, but also to be able to have contact with the people that were gonna be living alongside you uh, a long time before you moved in. Then yeah. now that you're, ac you're actually living there, how is that manifested like in your experience? I think uh, in and out, sorry, this microphone's very touchy. Um, it's a really nice place to live. Look, I've never been able to afford to buy it before. Um, it was something that I didn't think I'd be able to do, but when it got to the time, it actually was possible, uh, which is amazing, and I feel incredibly privileged to be able to do that. We know all our neighbours. Uh, we knew a lot of them before we moved in. We know almost all of them now. Um, people look out for each other. We had a, a moment where we were away and my, my partner's brother went over to collect something from our house and all of our neighbours came out and said hello and asked him who he was. And um, So yeah, it's really nice to have that. If someone forgets to collect their mail, people do that. Everyone looks after each other's pets. People borrow you know, curry powder and olive oil and things like that. Those kinds of things make it really, really nice. Um, but I am also conscious that, that we're a community of people that can afford to do it. And there are, there's, you know, by default, people that aren't able to be part of that community. 
Um, but I think there's some good models, and I think we were talking before we started this panel about some rental models, which would be good. Um, yeah, so I think the, there's good progress. But I think that, that question of basically comes to the idea of um, scalability. And obviously, the, the types of models that are emerging in Melbourne right now, they are sort of associated with the inner north and certain types of lifestyles. Um, I actually recently moved back from living in Zurich for a number of years, and I think... I, there you go. Um, and... The thing that's really amazing about Zurich is that actually that's a city with it that has managed to scale these types of citizen-led models. Um, you have a cooperative housing model in Zurich that currently accounts for about 20% of the entire housing stock of the city. Um, and there are a number of reasons why that's happened um, that relate to land, they relate to financing, they relate to the history and the sort of capacity that's built up within the community to be able to um, drive and deliver those types of models. Um, but it also, it sort of puts, I think, uh, what is being done in Melbourne right now into some perspective um, that we still have a long way to go. And I guess one question I'd put maybe to Tim first is within your model, for example, what are some of the barriers to scale? Um, and is it something that could spread sort of citywide or is it really particular to certain areas? Um, I think probably... Funding, finance is one of the key barriers. I think the reason we're operating in the areas we operate in is because, um, you know, enabling citizens to become developers means that by nature you can't start at a, in a segment of the market where affordability is so acute that those participants can't withstand, you know, any ups and downs that come with being a developer. But you need to provide people who are sort of um, really sort of operating at the sort of truly affordable end of the market with a lot of price certainty, you know, so that that's probably um, the key thing in my mind. Um, and probably the only way to do that is to um, to scale up in terms of the, the size of the developments and then reduce that land cost, you know, proportionally for everybody. So... Um, yeah, I mean, for our model, funding has always been a challenge because we are trying to do something different. And, um, you know, we're, we get our uh, most of our funding off major banks, but, of course, they look at what we're doing and they go, oh, this is a bit different. We kind of like it, but we don't like it. So, we'll yes, we'll lend you, but we won't lend you as much as we might lend you because they're just a bit wary. So, for instance, you know, we're sort of going through a process at the moment of sort of evolving our structure to um, make it a little bit more bank-friendly and reduce some of the, the perceived risk that they see in the model. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would say the funding is probably, you know, one, one of the key, the key barriers um, to seeing these um, types of models grow. I think there's enough demand out there, latent demand. Um, but a lot of the times when we talk to people who are interested in, in participating, you know, the, one of the very first uh, conversations we have is about, well, how much it typically costs to participate um, and the fact um, that the banks are going to want things like joint and several liability, you know, and that's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, when 
I was in Berlin in June and went and met with um, uh, one of the banks that funds a lot of the Baugruppen projects over there called GLS Bank. Um, and they're um, part of a, a global um, uh, group of banks, of which Bank Australia is, is, is one as well. Um, and for their Baugruppen projects in Berlin, they actually provide the participants um, with the takeout funding. So at the end of the project, everybody, which is the same in our model, everybody gets a mortgage for their own dwelling. And as those mortgages settle, it pays out the construction loan. But the construction loan's a commercial facility, so it's typically around 70%. But, you know, in um, uh, mortgage land or, you know, home loan land, you can get 80% or 90% finance against the dwelling. So in, in Germany, GLS Bank will allow those participants to take out that mortgage during construction. So they're, they're gearing up, um, so which means the capital, capital contribution is a lot less during the project, which enables more people to participate in our group and projects. You know, we don't, we don't have a financial institution here who's willing to, to take that sort of approach. So I think things like that happening, um, which, you know, may eventuate as, you know, these sorts of models grow and get more established, you know, th those sort of little step changes um, will make a difference in the long run. So finance is one part of the equation, but land is obviously another. Um, Bridget, I know you're not here with your government hat on, but you, you, you looked at a lot of um, examples of kind of land governance overseas. Um, are there things that are happening there that could be applied here? Yes, I think so. Uh, uh, just, just on Tim's point, I, I, just quickly, I think this uh, notion of individualised risk versus collective risk is a really interesting conversation in Australia. And not to scare everybody, but Australia has 200% private debt to GDP. The estates before the GFC in 2008 had 80% private debt to GDP. So we seem very comfortable with individuals taking on um, their own risk, but not so comfortable having a conversation about how we can engender collective risk. And I think that's a conversation that needs to be had more and more often, um, especially by financing institutions, um, in order to enable projects like this to happen. I think um, with regards to land management uh, overseas, I mean, I, I don't think there's an example where anybody's doing it really, really well. But I think if you look at um, systems like the Dutch, for example, where land is not used as much in the sense of it being an ability to generate income. So it's used and it's thought of an ability to generate shelter. And this idea of your exchange value versus your use value in, like, yes, there is money still made off land in the Netherlands. It would be silly. I mean, you know, they make land. Um, so it would be silly to think that that's not the case. But the conversation is always about who is this land, what value does it bring, and how can we make it happen to ensure that that value is as equitable as possible. And I think, um, like, my experience in London, you know, with the government there at the moment is really promoting the concept of like, so that they change the legislation so that superannuation funds can invest in affordable housing and make money off it. So previously, you could never make money off um, traditionally social rented housing. And they shifted that in order to, you know, to be able to generate more capital that could be invested into it. Um, and there were some really positive things from that where, you know, you had some super funds that were willing to take a return of 3 to 5% um, over a 50-year period, which, you know, then enabled capital to make these sorts of projects happen. Um, but... 
by and large, land is still being um, treated as a means to generate income to the extent that, you know, you've got houses sitting empty um, but still make money. You know, a parcel of land every year in London makes more than the minimum wage. So, you know, you know the way in which we treat land as, an, as a financial asset, I think we need a fundamental rethink to do that, uh, to ensure that we can make housing affordable. Um, and, you know, a land tax could be a way um, that we could just start to doing that or perhaps a more effective land ta tax that um, reduces the notion of speculating on the sort of the idea of creating value from the possibility of creating value, um, which is a really dangerous prospect that happens everywhere. Um, I think, you know, in countries where perhaps we, we don't look to often enough, for example, like in Thailand, where they have informal settlements and they do a process of land sharing to formalise the, the occupation of that land. And a key part of that land sharing is that you can't make money off it. You know, and it's it's put into the fundamental management of land from the beginning, which is has been really powerful. Um, so you're able to give people rights, but you put a boundary over those rights, and part of that boundary is that you can't use this land in order to speculate on its future value. So it results in a complete rethink of the way in which that land is used. They're also using that model in Cambodia and and in Kenya, and so. I think also we need to stop looking um, so much to um, the States or Europe or London as well and have a think about how our perhaps closer neighbours also also manage land. Yeah, and I think also we part of this kind of citizen-led housing um, topic is uh, community land trusts, which are really not actually about the building of the housing but more about the management of land and keeping that within the community. Um, we probably don't have time to go into that here, but... Um, it is something that I think people are starting to talk about in Australia and it is, there are partnerships that are possible between government and communities there, but there's also things that communities can do um, through their own initiative. Um, we don't, we are running out of time, but Tom, I think um, uh, another thing that government is doing is uh, supporting this uh, Melbourne Housing Exhibition Initiative, um, or EBA. Could you perhaps... Just uh, explain a little bit about what that is and what the what could come out of that process. Sure. Uh, so just very quickly. Um, so the EBA IBA stands for International Ausstellung, um, which is a German uh, phrase meaning International Building Exhibition, and it's a uh, sort of century-old or more um, process in uh, in well in Germany, but also uh, other German-speaking countries. And uh, there's a similar model in 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 Sweden where um, effectively uh, for, for a you know, con controlled period of time, uh, there's a real focus on a particular type of uh, planning and, and uh, design and development uh, occurring in a particular place focused on a particular issue. And it's about, um, I guess, cracking open some of the um, established um, systems of governance, um, maybe, you know, planning controls or maybe um, you know, other practices that um, are, are the norm, like ch uh, sort of looking beyond that to do something a bit differently for a period of time uh, in, in you know, real built projects uh, that are about demonstrating and experimenting and, uh, and challenging the status quo in order for people to be able to see in a tangible way uh, how things might be done differently and, and I guess a, a enabling um, agents like governments to experiment in, in the real world. And, and see what can happen. So it's a way of affecting systemic change in a, in a, in a quick 
uh, quick way. So a couple of um, important ones historically. Um, in Berlin in the, the 1980s, um, there was uh, substantial redevelopment um, of housing in, in the city on, on uh, sort of sites that have been vacant for a long time. It was really um, quite an important uh, process for them locally, but also had quite a lot of uh, international uh, impact and resonance, including here in Melbourne, where it influenced um, the production of some of our um, public housing at that time. And, uh, and then there was another one in the, uh, in the 1990s in uh, sort of derelict industrial area in, in, uh, in uh, sort of not, not in the city, but, um, but part of the industrial uh, part of uh, Germany that uh, you know, repurposed um, a lot of the, the infrastructure that was there and, and sort of created some vibrancy in those communities. So we, with, we're wanting to do um, something in, we've been planning it for a couple of years now, um, something in Melbourne that, that takes a similar approach, that, that borrows that model. And in fact, I've just been talking to people in Germany about, you know, making that a, a something, you know, official that we can actually use their, um, their label and, and sort of draw more directly on that tradition. Uh, but also... Um, what we're doing is uh, David Yenkin, the late David Yenkin, who passed away in September, who was the founder of Merchant Builders, a really important uh, housing um, company uh, in the 1960s and 70s here in Melbourne, and who was also um, secretary in the planning department in the, in the 1980s and oversaw a lot of important um, reforms of, um, of legislation uh, around housing provision. Uh, he was part of that group, um, and as I say, he's recently passed away. So we we also see this as part, you know, a very Melbourne thing, really sort of carrying on an important legacy and uh, and doing something different in the housing space. So I guess watch this space, and hopefully there'll be some uh, demonstration projects that come out of it. That's right. And I, sorry, the other thing I should just quickly say it's a, it's a collaboration between I'm at RMIT, Melbourne University, Monash, uh, Swinburne, and also the state. Uh, government um, uh, have been part of this. Um, the title of this panel was Citizen-Led Housing, and so I think we need to hear from citizens. Um, so, sorry, yeah, if anyone has some questions, now's the time. Um, I look around and I see that I'm one of the oldest people here, but forgive me, I need to know the age group that you guys are experiencing or catering to? Uh, for me, it's mostly, um, uh, if I make sweeping sort of generalisations, is mostly downsizers and, and upgraders, and that's probably a function of the fact that, you know, we're operating in pretty expensive suburbs, and, and so there's an affordability issue there. Which suburbs are you in? Uh, we're in Northcote, Thornbury, Brunswick, Brunswick West, North Melbourne, West Melbourne... Yeah, so they're expensive suburbs. Um, but more and more, um, we, we're on the verge of starting a, a, a group out in Burundara. And um, we're sort of also expensive, but it, it's, like I said, it's a function of our funding model at the moment. I, I think we're just not at the point where we can really promote projects in more um, less expensive areas just because of the nature of the beast. But... Um, I am having more and more conversations with people who are sort of looking at um, uh, what their options are for downsizing into a place for retirement. And, and um, it, I think as, as more and more people 
look at the sort of aged care alternatives and they kind of don't like what they see. We're starting to, to sort of experience quite a lot of interest in our model, whether or not it's right for people who, you know, want to become a developer in their sort of late 50s or early 60s, we'll find out. But, but yeah, that's kind of the mix that we've got at the moment. Sure. Um, I'll just start by saying that the demand, we have a range of properties from one to four bedroom and the demand for our one and two bedroom properties far outweighs that for our larger properties. So the demand for families in our style of living is a lot lower than it is for empty nesters and for single people who are ageing. Um, in terms of our community, though, we do have a range of people from um, septuagenarians, incredibly active still in the community, I have to say. Um, we don't have anyone who requires um, care yet in our community, but that's something that we will need to face right down to, um, I'd say, um, young singles and families in their 30s. We we don't have any members at the moment who are in their 20s, but when the place was first founded, some of our single younger members were in their 20s then. We're out in Heidelberg Heights. Yeah. Uh, 122 Roseneath has a pretty big mix. It's probably mostly families, but there's a lot of uh, younger couples, of which I am. There's downsizers, there's uh, kind of single occupants that are of all ages from kind of 30 to 50 plus. Yeah, big me. Hi there. My question kind of flows on perfectly. Um, so my first e example of independent living was living in a student housing cooperative in Canberra. And um, I guess the student, uh, the housing cooperative kind of model fits students perfectly, I think, in terms of their lifestyles. Um, of course, we don't have the capital to, capital to actually invest in housing ourselves. Um, but this was student-led. Um, but I guess my question is, how can we kind of lobby the government or potentially universities to actually start investing in these kind of alternative models as opposed to, you know, the, the small one-bedroom apartments that we're seeing or alternatively as well, I guess, the college residencies, which don't really foster community and lead to isolation? Uh, so um, I'm putting my... So I work for the government, so you have to take this answer as me not representing the government. <laughs> so, one. Um, and from perhaps more, my most recent experiences. So government is, like of all countries, mostly Anglo-Saxon, the generation of income that comes from land and housing, government is implicit in. So, sorry, complicit, implicit. It, it relies on it. So, like, take Victoria, for example. If, like, all of our income comes, or a lot of the government's income comes from stamp duty. So, you know, and that's, that's like, it's really complicated. And so, our income tax goes to our federal government, um, which means that the the fiscal, our fiscal decentralisation policy that then redistributes that tax is really political. And so the, the um, state government has limited control to increase its revenue generation, but one of the ways that it can do that is increase the value of land. And so it, it relies on, and our economic growth cycle rely on a process of increased building 
And so to take that away, we need to have a broader conversation about our taxation system um, and, you know, also the fact that m a lot of people, their land is their superannuation or their land is their, their you know, it's, it's how they intend to, you know, do something else. The, the reality is no one actually benefits from high land prices because, you know, if you bought a house in West Brunswick 10 years ago that was $800,000 and now it's worth $1.5 million, if you have to move, the next house you buy is also going to be worth $1.5 million. So, you know, uh, also we could look at taxes that uh, limit, um, inher you know, inheritance taxes and things like that, which are deeply politically un unfavourable. So... We, we need to have a broader conversation about that. I think the government could, like local governments, um, be, because they're in a position where perhaps they have a more direct relationship with their constituents, have a position of um, advocacy there. But again, they're really limited um, by their ability to, for resources. So um, for me, coming from the land piece, I think it's all about land. Um, but until we're able to have a conversation with government about how much they rely on it, um, and we fix our taxation <laughs> problem, it, it, it's going to be a challenging one. <laughs> and there's also the doctrine of, um, I guess, highest and best use in the disposal of land, which um, has in recent times tended to mean um, selling to a property developer for apartment development. Um, but you mentioned Canberra, which I think is a really, um, really interesting example in the Australian context, because when it was established, um, it was set up as a, a leasehold system rather than a freehold uh, land system, and that's, um, that enabled, uh, well, that uh, really, I guess, bold approach that I think it was um, King O'Malley was, that was the, one of the drivers of, um, was really uh, important then in enabling Canberra to develop um, at, a, at a higher density, actually. I mean, with quite, you know, you wouldn't think of Canberra as high density, but uh, a lot of the, um, the older housing in Canberra is, is relatively high density. There's a lot more apartments there, a lot more medium density housing historically um, than Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane. And, uh, and that's because of that leasehold, making that actually more achievable and hence a lot more interesting uh, types of tenure um, explored within that as well, including um, the kind of cooperative you mentioned as well. So thinking differently about land and uh, how it's held and the resource that it is, is I think really critical, yeah. Sorry, I just thought of one more thing as well. Um, with citizen-led development, it doesn't also have to be just the people that are working on that development itself. You know, if you live on a street and one of Tim's properties comes up and you get a, you know, a yellow planning notice, write in, a, you know, write in a letter of support saying to the council, I support this type of development and I'd rather see this type of development in my street than, you know, your average flammable cluttered apartment building. You know, this, like, <laughs> you know, have a, <laughs> have a think about citizen-led development isn't just those working on the project. Um, in, in that vein as well, if the issue of agency, you know, think about how you can help others that perhaps are in, not in a position to help themselves as much as perhaps someone like myself is, you know, in, in that sense. It's not just about building your own project, it's, it's this a collective approach. Um, maybe just to wrap up, I wanted to ask Alexis to take it back to the moderator. I know that you have been working with City of Sydney uh, a little bit over the past year to um, explore the Swiss model of cooperatives and whether that can exist in Australia. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that and whether we'll see something like that in Melbourne? Sure. Um, so this was part of a competition that was run by the City of Sydney called the Alternative Housing Ideas Challenge. Um, there were seven teams that kind of went to the finalist stage and I was uh, on one with 
Um, two colleagues that actually are probably known to a lot of people here, Andy Ferguson, um, Catherine Sunderman. And our model was essentially exploring how you can adapt Swiss cooperative or Zurich cooperative housing um, to the Sydney context, but really to the broader Australian context. Um, it's interesting because I think probably 90% of our time has been spent on um, the financial side. And it really is, I think, the, the key to unlocking this kind of development in Australia. Um, and that includes uh, getting banks like Bank Australia to have a different idea of um, what property investment can be. Because when you talk to a bank here, um, everything is kind of uh, seen through the perspective of the existing housing market and their understanding of how mortgages work and um, risk involved in typical off-plan development. And when you say, wait a minute, cooperative housing, um, we can offer sort of 30-year fixed returns um, if you give us just a slightly better um, rate on our debt, they, it's a completely different kind of mindset change for banks. That's one part. I think also um, impact investors. Uh, impact investors in Australia still expect really, really high returns. Um, in Zurich, you can get investors who will accept a 2% return. Um, in Australia, they want 15%. Uh, you also, I mean, super funds came up in the earlier panel as, as a way to kind of um, unlock a lot of uh, value that's sort of in the Australian economy that could be directed to better purposes. We also spoke to super funds and they said that they had a fiduciary duty to their members to not accept below market returns, which they were saying was 9 to 10%. Um, I would find it hard to believe that they're earning 9 to 10% return on every single investment they're making. So if they can also satisfy um, a sort of social mission through providing affordable housing, then... I think there's value in that. So perhaps, um, I can't remember which speaker it was in the previous panel, but this idea of having um, right into your super fund and trying to put a bit of pressure on, on the way that they're actually setting up their investment portfolio, um, I think there are possibilities to redirect uh, institutional investment into this sort of sector. Um, but I think it is, it is, finance is the key and land. And our model is particularly looking in Sydney at um, developing initially on government land, but not... Um, the government retaining ownership and giving us a long-term lease that we'd pay fair ground rent for. And I think there's definitely scope to do that in Melbourne too. Unfortunately, uh, local governments in Melbourne have retained a lot less land than in New South Wales. Um, but there is still land around. And, I, and again, I think that's the kind of... There is scope for people um, to put a bit of pressure on their local governments as well um, around how they're thinking about their use of land. Great. Well, I think that um, wraps it up. Thanks so much to our panel and to Alexis for being a wonderful moderator. Um, please, round of applause for everybody. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.